Hello and welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host Alejandro Rojas and I am joined by Martin Gypsy Willis. Gypsy, I like that. Oh good. I always wanted to be a gypsy. See, some people are offended and they're like, gypsies are evil and they don't like them. No, no, I mean, can you imagine not having like any bills? Yeah. That's the first thing I think of. Mm-hmm. Just well, like living in a tent with no bills, like, you know, American Horror Story Freak Show, something <laughs> like that. What? Yeah. And you have a home, uh, some home on a mountain or something like that, but uh, but you do travel a lot, so you're not really nomadic, but somewhat, I guess. That's why I called you a gypsy. Yes, and I hope to travel out to Arizona for about a week this coming February, at least. Yeah, you should. You know, it- we, uh, yeah, a certain week. Um, you know that we have... 25 degrees here in Maine. You're kidding. No, it's... uh. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting a snowbird urge, for sure. On my way to work, there were 73 degrees. <sighs> yeah. And that's in the morning. It's it's actually been kind of warm. It's still kind of in the 90s, but uh, it's it should be cooling down here. And 73 was... Really nice. In fact, this weekend, yesterday, it was rainy and it was just perfect out. Yeah. Yep. You get the weather there. At least I don't know about the real high temps in the summer. I'm not sure if that's me or not. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can handle that. Yeah, I hear you. So just snowbird it, you know? Yeah, I'd like it's to do nice. that. It's nice. It's just yeah. like when people come to the UFO Congress in February and, you know, it's in the 70s and they're in the pool and everything, it's just a little bit of paradise in the, in the cold. Yeah, I know. I was, uh, I was here only like three days last year, and it just went by really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Way too fast. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It does fly by. It's just a, a lot of fun. So um, uh, I guess a couple things uh, to tell people. First, I have to uh, apologize because we didn't have a show last week, and you know, I was telling people we would, and, and you know, some of you who went to our webpage probably had a less than stellar experience a couple days out of the week last week and that was a whole issue is that we had some internet problems we host our internet here uh, our webpage and uh, we had a router go bad and uh, you may know more about this I'm not sure Martin but a router is uh, like this little metal box and you plug some cables into it and it has these blinky lights and it does stuff, and uh, if something goes wrong, I don't know, like a blinky light didn't work or something, and that made <laughs> everything uh, really messed up. So we had to get a new one, and it was this whole ordeal. And uh, because of that, uh, lots of our, our website had issues and everything, and uh, we weren't able to do an interview last week. And uh, So I apologize, but this week we have a great show. We have Robert Powell. 
So he's the director of uh, investigations or research for MUFON. And you guys may remember we had him not too long ago with uh, Morgan Bial, who's the MUFON mm. um, state director out of Florida. But we were talking about the Puerto Rico case because uh, Robert mm. Powell is a part of that case. However, this uh, discussion is going to be about MUFON because at the MUFON symposium at, for the last few years, uh, Robert is in charge of the scientific advisory board for MUFON. And what they'll do is they'll review all the cases for a year and uh, come up with what they think are the top 10 cases. And so we're going to be talking with Robert about the top 10 cases of 2014. Awesome. Yes, I did listen to that show. That was, uh, he's great. Oh, great the guess. Puerto yeah. Rico one? Yeah. Right. So, and it, what's good about, what's cool about this, that one and this one is, is Robert's a real skeptic. I think people don't know this uh, because he's talking about, you know, cases he's he's into. But uh, he's a real skeptic, so he's really hard on these cases. So when you have a case like Puerto Rico or these 10 that we're going to be talking about uh, in uh, just a few minutes here, and, uh, you know, he, he tells us why he thinks these are great cases. And uh, so that's really exciting when you have skeptics, you know, talking about cases that they believe are genuinely mysterious. Is it okay if I plug uh, what I have coming up this this Wednesday? Oh gosh! <laughs> uh, you're just bringing up the topic of skeptic, and I have uh, one of the ultimate skeptics coming on. Uh, you may oh, know him yeah. by his smirk, maybe. Uh, Michael Shermer, Doctor Michael Shermer, is coming up. I'm not sure if we're going to get right into a UFO debate, but that's kind of my intentions. He's he's kind of excited to be on. Actually, we've been emailing back and forth. So that will be uh, interesting. That's coming up this Wednesday live at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Michael Schmerker. Yeah, Michael Schmerker. Michael Schmerker. Or <laughs> Schmugger, because he's very smug. Schmugger, Schmerker. You know, it's. Uh, I've talked to some people that know him say he's a real swell guy. So uh -huh. we'll, we'll see. Um, but I've uh, also seen him. Uh -huh. On Larry King, etc., kind of you know bashing away. He might be, levels. but uh, at just like uh, you know um, Shostak, I love Shostak. Seth Shostak, the head mm -hmm. senior scientist for SETI, uh, and he's funny. He, he's great, but when you talk about UFOs, yeah, that's uh, that gets a little more frustrating. Yeah, but um, all right, we'll give you a chance in the news to plug yourself a little more there, buddy. Because I'm sure we've got, uh, I know we've got a new story that you'll probably want to talk to just so you can get a plug in. Um, but also, uh, I know you have some guests related to a story I definitely want to cover this week, and I'm sure you will as well. Let's see. I guess we should get right to the news. I have a feeling there was something else I wanted to say, but uh, I guess I'll save that. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. Uh, I just want to, usually I, I save a lot of kind of the, news about what's going on with open minds till the end but here's something i, I want to say and uh, tell you about because i don't know if you know yet like mufon had a group a facebook group and it was a great group it was a closed group and uh, some people may think well why is it closed you know why can't anybody go in there and comment and and, and that's because like you know martin there's trolls out there who are just will get out there. They're not constructive. They'll just be mean. Uh, they'll be spiteful. They'll just be disgusting. And, and it completely deteriorates your faith in humanity when you see these people posting what they post. 
So a what the beauty of a closed group is there are standards that you have to uphold to, such as, you know, making sure that you're constructive, that you're not uh, personally attacking people, so you can keep the trolls out. And I found the MUFON uh, group to be a great fresh uh, breath of fresh air because it was a troll-free environment where you can go and discuss UFO cases and everything. And I know you were in there, right? Um, I think you were a part of it, and you would get in and comment here and there. Uh, I have to say no. I, I did. Yeah. Um, I Maybe I was. I'm, I'm, I belong to a number of them, and some yeah. of them are closed. Yep. So. Well, hopefully you don't mind. I'm going to invite you into ours today because uh, what we did is that went away. Mufon decided they didn't. They had too much going on on Facebook, and they're just going to focus on their main Facebook page, um, which is full of open mind stories, which is great. <laughs> but um, so those admins had, you know, developed this skill of being able to. Uh, moderate and uh, keep things civil and uh, professional and so luckily you know I was in that group quite a bit and uh, I've got a great relationship with these guys and so they have uh, agreed to moderate a new group for open minds so it's called the open minds uh, UFO news group uh, so go on Facebook and look for a group called open minds UFO news and you have to request to be part of it as long as you don't have a history of trolling or being a, a real mean person, you know, you'll go get right in and, and it'll be a lot of fun. So uh, it's fun to have these discussions and everything. And I'm really excited about this because uh, I'm glad that it was a real bummer for a lot of people when they saw MUFON decided to close the group. And so it's great to have uh, be able to bring it back alive and, and keep it going. People like Mark D'Antonio, he's one of the main admins in there. Yeah, um, I just saw him this last weekend. He looks really oh, good. Oh, you did? Yep. And you, the, the beauty about these uh, closed groups, um, you can have notifications, so you can see who's posting in there. You get alerts. And yeah. uh, I really like that because if someone's posting that, I always enjoy what they write. You know, I make sure, you know, for instance, actually, um, uh, maybe... Uh, this is a little too much, but when you post, I actually do read. So oh, uh, it shows when it pops up that you wrote something, and I'm always wow. uh, interested in reading what you're. Yeah, what you're well, writing. I'd like you to be in there and your podcast group because you have uh, podcast UFO. You know, you have a few people um, that help you with the news on Facebook and everything. So they've mm -hmm. all got to come and join. That would be great to have you guys part of the conversation in there with us. Excellent. All right. All right, so I wanted to mention that. But uh, speaking of the news, you know, the news that we're posting in there and discussing, Martin and I have some news to talk about. And, you know, when I was on your show just the other day on Wednesday, I was talking about how terrible the news was. There's no news out there, which is true at the point. And I said, however, I knew some stories were on the horizon, and those stories have come to fruition. And so now we've got a lot of great news to talk about. So why don't you start us off? Yeah, that's right. And you probably, you know, you just mentioned a few minutes ago, you may be talking about what uh, Leslie wrote recently. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I, I'm going to go a different way um, Ooh, okay. because uh, this is something that you wrote about, but mm. it's all over the internet and it's really fascinating. Mm. And it's scientists research whether extraterrestrials are responsible for a Kepler mystery. And this is uh, totally fascinating to me. Now, um, one of the, uh, 
let's see. I, I think this is back. Was that nearly? I can't remember how many years ago. I'm not seeing that really in this article. But a uh, star named KIC eight four six two eight five two. Why don't they just call it like I don't know, Frankie? Uh, yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Freaky. Yeah, freaky would be good. But anyway, um, this has uh, it's showing that there's a uh, some weird dimming pattern, like a curved. Uh, they say like curved light. Um, coming out from it, and it could be a number of things, including uh, possible extraterrestrial uh, megastructures. Now, I know um, that this is way down on the list of what they're looking at, but still, just the thought that uh, they're even talking about as a possibility um, is Jason Wright. Now, he's an astronomer at uh, Penn State University, and he um, quickly came out to... Uh, afterwards, after this went kind of viral, and said, you know, this is just part of it. You know, he he didn't recant in any type of way, but he did want to make sure that the public knew that that wasn't the number one uh, thing that they were thinking it was, you know, the megastructure. So back in 2011, uh, members of the Planet Hunter group uh, tagged um, this particular star as interesting and bizarre, and Tabitha... I'm going to try to pronounce her name right, Boya Jain, Boya Jain, uh, very similar to that. I actually um, looked that up to make sure I was pronouncing it right. Hmm. Um, she's a postdoc at Yale, and she oversees the Planet Hunters and uh, has taken a closer look at this. And there's also in this story here on openminds.tv, there is a link to her findings, uh, all very interesting. Um, this is really um I think this is really a fascinating story, and it's really fun to hear the different type of people talk about it, and I'm going to be talking about it on my show coming up as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, I think it's important. Uh, you know, I I think I included the quote where Wright had said, you know, the extraterrestrial possibility is the absolute last one we would look at. Um, and he did uh, preface that, but the, the issue is, and I guess it's just kind of a media issue that's been happening is I was really careful and it took me a while to come up with a headline because I wanted it to be interesting but accurate Um, and that's why I put scientists research whether extraterrestrials are responsible for Kepler mystery because that's true that's what they're doing but a lot of headlines out there are misleading and saying they found this alien megastructure and they're playing that part up I think more than they should because mm-hmm. really, uh, what they found was, uh, to explain it to people, when they look for a, whether or not a star has a planet, they look for the star's light to dim. Because if a planet is moving in front of the star, um, it will make the, the sun dim, you know, like if you put your hand in front of a light or something like that. And uh, a planet will dim you know once every through few days for instance the sun uh the earth will make the sun dim if someone was looking every 365 days as we go around the sun and it's been looking th- since 2009 and this particular star has a weird dimming pattern so something's moving in front of it but not like a planet so they don't know what it is and so of course when you think of it like that, it could be a number of possibilities. Something's moving in front of this star. Uh, but, you know, one of those possibilities that this Mr. Uh, 
Wright wants to explore is that what if it's uh, extraterrestrial? And SETI has for years figured if we look at these stars and we see some kind of weird dimming pattern, you know, it might be extraterrestrial, an extraterrestrial civilization or something with large mega structures like the Dyson Sphere, which is a structure you surround a sun with in order to collect uh, its energy. This was mm -hmm. on, this was actually a scientific theory, but it was on Star Trek and stuff like that. But uh, so that's what they think it's a possibility, but there's like no way to check. So this Boyajian, uh I'm not sure how you say it, Tabitha, we'll just say Tabitha, mm -hmm. which is, this is what's cool about this story though, is that she was the Yale um, postdoc in charge of this planet hunter group. And uh, so she's mainstream. Her paper she wrote about this was all mainstream and some conventional kind of ideas as, what, uh, as to what could be causing this. And then uh, Wright came along and he wrote about just the extraterrestrial possibility. But there's their buddies and they've teamed up with a SETI scientist mm. to explore the extraterrestrial possibility. So she's open to that idea, and so they're going to listen to radio signals to see if they can hear anything, but that's about all they can do. Unfortunately, this mystery is going to remain a mystery for a very, very, very long time because there's not much they can do to uh, research it, but they are researching to try to do what they can to try to figure out, you know, what might be going on there and if it is extraterrestrial, but... Um, but uh, don't get too excited, people. I mean, the headlines out there make it sound a lot more exciting than it is. Uh, really, you see this star dimming. And just like if a light dims on the porch, it could be a moth or a bunch of moths. You know, you, know, you have no idea. It's not necessarily an extraterrestrial past in front of your light uh, in your back porch making it dim. So <laughs> you, we don't yeah. know. Yeah, 1,480 light years away and it could actually be a cluster of comets you know that is one of the possibilities mm. but it's kind of baffling why someone would have to say this is the last thing that you know we will check um because i think it should just be part of it you know not well uh, i think it's just saying it's the last yeah well i see what you're saying but um it's you know at least to them because we don't, we have other examples of comets. We don't have other examples of extraterrestrial civilizations. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of more of a long shot out of all mm -hmm. the possibilities out there. But that's what I think is interesting is that they're looking at it and they're taking it seriously and they are making it part of their whole uh, study. And uh, that's one of the exciting parts I think of this story is that, you know, these, these scientists are really taking this possibility seriously. Now, I don't want to take up too much time in this, but... I do want to ask you this one question. Okay, so what happens if all of a sudden they say, well, it sure looks like uh, that seems like the only possibility? You know, what happens then? Well, uh, that would be difficult, if not impossible, to say. And I think that we have examples on, let's say, Mars. Uh, it took, especially NASA, a long time to admit, you know, there was uh, signs of, of water in the Martian mm -hmm. atmosphere, uh, the European Space uh, Agency had made their conclusion or at least formalized it sooner in that you have to prove it. And how do you prove something like that? And that's what becomes really difficult when you have a limited amount of data and a limited amount of capability to collect more data. 
um, you've got to come up with technological solutions to find to get more data to prove your point and uh, that's the hard part uh, for instance with the water you know we only have so many missions going with and they only have so many uh, a certain set of instruments so we had to wait for more and more missions which took years and years to happen you know for some of these things to be confirmed and so that's just what it takes it's a lot of time and and data and um you've got to prove it so right. and how do you prove something like that i mean uh maybe if they got radio signals they would be uh even if they got radio signals they would have to prove they came from that area or that exact star um but of course what are the chances that the civilization that has mega structures used radio mm. in the past or never thought of that but you know you're if they can build a mega structure you know probably that was uh distant past technology for them if if at all we they right. might not have gone that route they might have used something else and you know the radio signals have to be very powerful to reach that far they just don't go mm -hmm. in a direction forever Right. Uh, like a lot of people think, you, they need to be very powerful to make it a, a long distance. So, mm. well, it's all fascinating stuff. Yeah. It really is. Yep. Mm. So we'll see what happens, but it's fun. It's a neat story. Right. And it's cool that it's getting so much uh, publicity because I think it helps uh, the field and it helps people to open up their minds and to think, wow, you know, there could be aliens out there. Cool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the next story. Um, let's see. I'm gonna. I guess the next story I'll go to is. Uh, well, I'll go to the one that we we're talking about. I mean, there's an exciting one, but uh, you're gonna feature. You're gonna have Leslie Kane and Mark Rodinger on your show. Rodinger on your show. Um, Mark used to be part of. Um, I think he's the actual official head of NICAP at this point. Or, or is it um, actually Kufos? the Alan Heinick. Oh, oh KUFOS. Yeah. That's right, KUFOS. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Center for UFO Studies started by Alan Hynek, who was the uh, astronomer who was a consultant for the Air Force when it came to UFOs. Uh, he was a skeptic at first, became a believer at the end, and he started essentially as the grandfather of modern ufology, started the Center for UFO um, uh, Scientific Research and... Um, and Mark, along with another group of people, what's interesting is they're doing something similar. We talked about Mark D'Antonio a little right. while ago. They're doing something similar to what Mark D'Antonio and uh, Doug Trumbull, a special effects movie expert who has done the special effects for some of our favorite movies. Oh, and I didn't even think of this connection. Doug Trumbull even did the special effects for Close Encounters, uh, for which Heineck was a consultant. Hmm. But um, and Doug Trumbull's been into UFOs his whole life. But um, this group, uh, Leslie and Mark, at they they've gotten these uh, scientists and others together, and what they want to do is create a device. I don't even have a story up on this yet. I'm gonna, I still have to write it to, um, this week. But they want to record, create a device that can not only videotape and film UFOs, but also com, uh, collect other telemetry, 
like maybe um, radiation or different types of light that it is emitting and, and stuff like this um, to be able to get more information about UFOs. So eventually they're going to crowdsource to raise the funds to develop a prototype uh, machine. And so, yeah, so kind of interesting. And you're going to have them on your show to talk more about this. Uh, unfortunately, mm -hmm. I, the one thing I think that might be difficult is crowdsourcing in this field. Nobody has any money. I mean, other I people hear that have all tried. The time. Yeah, <laughs> other people have tried crowdsourcing, and they they really haven't been able to to um, get a lot of money. Yeah. Well, so. yeah, that's true. And you know, people I've talked to in the past. I did speak with Mark this weekend, and I asked him if he was aware of what was going on. I actually sent him an email. Him and Doug. Uh, Trumbull, and he said, yes, they're both aware of it, and they are connecting. I said, isn't there a possibility of some type of collaboration? And uh, he said, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, this information belongs to the people. That was Mark's exact words. So I know yeah. they're right in the midst of developing their uh, equipment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Mark at the MUFON Symposium had a mock-up of a similar device that that he's building called UFOTOG, you know, with Doug Trumbull. We've had right. Mark, and we've had Mark and Doug Trumbull on our show. I think you have, too, mm -hmm. talking about this stuff. So, um, yeah, so I, I was talking to Mark last week, too, when I saw this story, and, and I'm hopeful they do hook up uh, so they can kind of join efforts uh, so they don't have to go off on uh, different directions because I think Mark – um, they may have gotten some people who may be interested in funding their projects, so it might be helpful. And that's the one thing that might be good about crowdsourcing is getting the word out there, and then you might find some, some people with some deeper pockets willing to um, help fund these projects. That would be cool. And I know that uh, Doug um, has had quite a successful career, and he has a, a lot of his own funds into what they're doing. Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. So this is fun. Here's another story, and, and I love this. This is – I didn't even know this was going on. So the listeners may know that I spoke at the National Atomic Testing Museum just a few weeks ago, and uh, they have an Area 51 exhibit. We've covered that quite a bit, and uh, that exhibit will be closing at the end of the year, not any conspiracy related to that actually just like many museum exhibits, this, is, this was only supposed to be temporary in the first place. But because it's been so successful and there's been so much interest, they've kept it open longer than uh, they even expected to. But they finally will be closing it down at the end of the year. And this exhibit on Area 51 includes a lot of information about UFOs. In fact, I think uh, at least half of it is really about UFOs and, and not necessarily Area 51. But of course, someone involved with this is George Knapp. Uh, he's, he got to, uh, help him with a lot of the material in this exhibit. George Knapp being the investigative reporter for KLAS in Las Vegas. And the man really responsible for, uh, putting Area 51 on the map when he interviewed mm -hmm. whistleblower Bob Lazar about Bob saying he worked at Area 51 working on alien technology. Um, George, of course, covered that, and uh, the whole thing took off. Well, in order, you know, as they get close to the closing of Area 51, they're having a bunch of uh, speakers to talk about Area 51 as kind of a send-off for the exhibit. And uh, I didn't even know about this, but just this last weekend, well, uh, a 
week ago, not just the one we just got out of, but the, the one before that, they had a talk where they brought a bunch of CIA guys. Uh, mm. Three guys who used to work, or one of them who currently works for the CIA, and um, to talk about Area 51. And one of these guys was the CIA's head historian. Um, another one was an engineer who worked there, and uh, I forget what the other guy did. He's uh, um, oh, he was the senior scientific intelligence officer. Um, and but it was an engineering expert. Yeah. So um, yeah. The engineering expert was someone else. Yeah, Thornton Burns. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I already Sorry. said that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, okay, where was it? Okay, so, um, of course, you know, um, people are going to give them a hard time about stuff, including George Knapp. So they made a really goofy statement, one of them. Uh, the quote was... Uh, this is a funny quote, too, from George Knapp, his story. You've got to watch his story. We embedded it in our uh, in our story here. Uh, and what I mean by that is George Knapp's uh, story that he did for KLAS. I love George Knapp as a journalist. He's so yeah, he's great. He's, I mean, he's articulate, and the words he uses and the way he introduces things are unique and smart. And I just I think he's an excellent – I just love his stories. But Same he, here. I think he's top shelf. Out of the CIA panelists, he said they had their tongues in their cheeks when talking about Nevada's rock star of military bases, Area 51. I love that quote. Mm. But one of the guys, the engineer, said what happens at that secret base called Area 51 is known by everyone. There is no secret. What mm. a goofball statement. What do you mean there's no secret? Uh, the name Area 51 was redacted from CIA documents for, for years, for decades, up until recently. So what the heck is he talking about? Plus all the secret, uh, you know, the new uh, planes they're developing there, the, you know, right. the military. We don't know what the heck they're doing right now. Secrets there. Right. Mm -hmm. So a really goofy statement. Uh, George Knapp obviously didn't uh, agree with the statement. He thought it was kind of silly. He, he highlights in his story that one of the other guys there, the guy you're talking about, the, the engineer, um, he talked about, he essentially said, I disagree with that. You know, when I worked there, I couldn't even tell my wife where I worked because mm. uh, it was such a secret. He, he couldn't even tell her, hey, I work at Area 51. You know, I don't know what he told her. He's telling her he worked at Denny's or something. I I don't know, but uh, um, so he disagreed. $2,000 a day working at Denny's. Yeah. Yeah. So George Knapp started pushing him on this, and he's like, wait a second. He's like, but the government can hold tell secrets, right? I mean, you guys are in charge of secrets. There's this whole notion that, oh, you know, the government's terrible at keeping secrets. They can't keep secrets. But the government can keep secrets. And the historian jokingly says, I can neither confirm nor deny that secrets can mm. be kept, which is kind of funny. So mm. Jeremy Corbell was also there, and uh, we've had him on our show. I think you've had him. Yep. He's a, uh, a documentarian. Uh, he was at the Congress. He released a couple documentaries there. He's going to release some more at our next UFO Congress. And um, he, of course, debated um, Stanton Friedman, 
at the UFO Congress about Bob Lazar because he's a supporter and he's a, done a documentary. He asked them about UFOs, though. And they said there's no, they don't have anything about UFOs. They said the CIA doesn't invest in UFOs. And he further said that they did a study where they found a 75% correlation between black projects and UFO sightings. Wow. And uh, the Bruce McAbee, George Knapp asked Bruce McAbee about that. And Bruce McAbee includes a study to verify whether that statement is true or not in one of his books. And he says, no, that's not true at all. In fact, prior to their black projects, in particular the U-2 and SR-71 uh, that people didn't know about that they were flying around, prior to that there were more UFO sightings than when that came out. And right. um, I wrote about a document before, you know, the, the document that was unredacted. The document that um, made the big deal that was about Area 51, but uh, or it was about the U-2 and the SR-71, but everything about Area 51 was blacked out. And they unblacked it out and released that just a couple years ago, and that's how it was official that Area 51 existed. In that document, they say they make these same statements, and they talk about there were so many UFO sightings from the U-2 flying around in the mid to late 50s that the Air Force began investigating UFOs. Mm. Totally wrong. You yeah, know, 1952 the, was the big year. 51 was when area... Yeah, you're right. But And 51 was when the Air Force began investigating officially and publicly. So a lot of wrong information. And uh, it is really funny because here's one of George's last points. And I'll read this. You guys got to hear him say it. He, he does this all really well. But he says, CIA employees and contractors who toiled in secrecy at Area 51 helped win the Cold War. They did so in part by using disinformation and cover stories, even with their own families. It is an agency known for relying on subterfuge and misdirection, but not a lot of truth. Mm. So he's essentially saying, uh, yeah, they've got a lot of their facts wrong uh, and they are not a trustworthy uh, what comes from them. So, yeah, so I thought this was fascinating. I thought it was fascinating that they this happened, uh, that they were able to ask these questions. And this week, I guess Jeremy Corbell is going to be um, – he videotaped a lot of this. And so this week he's going to be releasing his videos on this. Uh, he's got a website, Extraordinary Beliefs where he talks about it, and uh, we'll be talking to Jeremy more about that. If you ask, like, the average American, if you think a panel of uh, CIA members would be telling the truth or lying, what do you think they'd say? <laughs> Funny enough, I think if you didn't say tell what the topic was, most people would say that they're lying. Mm -hmm. that you can't trust them. They're, gonna, they're not going to be uh, accurate. But then if you told them it was about UFOs, there'd probably be more people who would say, oh, they're probably telling the truth. But um, but it would still probably be a large percent that would say, yeah, you can't really trust what they're saying. Yeah. Well, I mean, George makes a good point. They're, they don't deal in truth. They're, their job is not to share facts and information like George's. Mm -hmm. Theirs is to spin and to you know weave whatever tale they want to uh, people to believe. Right, exactly. So, but fun stuff. I'm really, I really like that. Otherwise, 
There are a couple UFO videos and a couple UFO stories on the site as well. There's a weird one with these blue glowing lights floating around. Mm. But, you know, one of our uh, readers, um, Allison Cruz, I think her name is, she sent me, uh, posted a link to these balloons that have LEDs in them. You can buy a bunch of these balloons for like 10 bucks. So I think she's right. I think that these might be those blinky balloons like she she uh, posted. So I think she might have solved that one. Wow. Um, the Just other... one more thing to worry about. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, exactly. Chinese lanterns and now we have blinky balloons. blue balloons. Mm-hmm. Wow. And they're cheap. I couldn't believe they're like actually, yeah, less than 10 bucks for a bunch of these balloons. And then the other one, which actually has gotten some international media attention, is a story that Roger Marsh wrote about uh, a Coney Island witness who takes a f- picture of a UFO. Uh, this guy is a photographer. He's a street photographer uh, in New York. And it's just this weird string of lights that he got in this picture. And uh, a lot of people on the Internet, like, you know, those UK sto- um places have picked this story up and are calling it a millennium falcon um Mm. so probably you know cashing in on some of the excitement around the upcoming star wars for which Mm. i am very excited as well but yeah this is kind of a neat picture that people can pick out or check out in our uh in our news great well let's hope you don't have any more internet trouble this coming week yeah amen to that brother hmm so uh, anything else, any other news you wanted to talk about? No, I think, uh, like you said, I think it's there's a lot of great stuff going on this week. And uh, and this, uh, this whole thing with um, the new evidence or the new uh, scientific research, I think, is, um, is going to keep making some news. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, it's kind of like, yeah, it's made such a splash that it's going to be something that is going to be added to, I think, future discussions um, about extraterrestrial civilizations and science and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm going to put you on the spot a bit here, too. Uh-oh. Uh, can, I, can I – I'm going to add you to that group. Yeah. Okay, and can I count on you to maybe make a couple comments in the next few days? I don't have a computer. Oh, Okay. Sure, no problem. (laughs) No computer. Smart guy. Okay. Well, you've got some traveling to do, Mr. Gypsy, right? I do. Okay. Well, have a fun travel. Be safe. And uh, thank you so much for joining us for the news. And we'll talk to you later. You betcha. All right. Let's go ahead and talk to Robert Powell. I am very excited to have back on the show Robert Powell. Hello. Welcome. Hi, Alejandro. It's good to uh, talk to you again. Yeah, and so for the audience, so you know, I mean, we we recorded this, and this is why the show's late. Usually it's up on Mondays, but uh, Robert and I talked a, a couple, few days ago, and the audio screwed up, and so we're having to redo it again. So thanks so much for being a trooper, Robert, and uh, doing this again for us. And, and this is such an important thing. I didn't want to pass this up. Sure, I'm glad to do it. Yeah, so uh, so that's really cool. And what's funny for the audience, so they know, you know, this has only happened to me two or three times in the five or six years where the audio got screwed and I had to re re-record. Some of you who have been with me for five or six years know that in the past 
when the audio has been bad, you know, like many years ago, it hasn't happened lately, but uh, when I first started, it happened. I would even post it when the audio was bad as opposed to re-recording or because, you know, we're all, we all have such limited time. Uh, but this is like the second time, Robert, and I don't, luckily you don't remember the first time. You're not still uh, <laughs> holding a grudge or upset about it, but we had to you know, do I, this I once before. It, it's probably the aliens kind of don't yeah. like me. Yeah, exactly. You're a, they're, they're pretty upset about uh, what you do, I guess. <laughs> so, okay, so we'll get into a couple of things. First of all, uh, we did this last time, and, and I thought it was fun, and I had realized, you know, uh, most of the time I do the interviews, it's really off the cuff. Uh, off the cuff. I, I don't even like to plan. It's fun to be spontaneous. But uh, this was one of the good questions I asked you last time that I liked, which was your title. Usually I introduce you as MUFON's director of research, but you do other things for MUFON, correct? Right, that's right. I'm also the head of the Science Review Board, which mm -hmm. we created, or I created that group in 2012, and then I'm also a field investigator and also a member of MUFON's STAR team, mm -hmm. and then as part of the Science Review Board, um, I've created this sub-team that looks at the best cases that come into MUFON each year, and we've been doing this now since 2012, and we publish the uh, top 10 cases, doesn't have to be exactly 10, but roughly the top 10 cases uh, for each year, and we put those on our website. Cool. So you introduced that at the press conference at MUFON. Um, unfortunately, there's only two or three of us that were press that were there but uh you know i think this document's really important i know it'll be posted on mufon soon uh and we'll have more up on it soon but i want to talk you to you about it so we'll talk about those top 10 cases but i did want to catch up on a couple things first off the last time you were on the show was with Morgan bl because uh who's also a mufon uh person he's with a mufon state director for florida but this was on a project that you guys did separate from mufon and that was the puerto rico UFO case, and uh, are there any updates to that? Uh, there, there's no real updates. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we haven't had anyone uh, seriously evaluate um, the research report that we wrote yet. We're hoping someone will do that. Now, we have had uh, the French group, which, which is called uh, 3AF Sigma 2. It's part it's kind of affiliated with the French Space Space Agency, and uh, they've done a cursory look at it, and they find it very interesting, and they're continuing to look at it further, and sometime they indicated probably in December they'll make an official uh, review of it and, and put a link uh, to their site that we'll have on the SU, SCU site. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's a Scientific Coalition for Ufology website. You guys posted that report on. And um, otherwise, I mean, people have looked at it. I mean, it's kind of a good thing. And that uh, and that was what was exciting when it was released is that, you know, a lot of people, not like the Roswell slides where, you know, people, uh, first of all, you didn't even have to do much work to figure out what that was. But uh, people then did some research and, and did find things on that there's been a couple of, of retorts but um, at least the experts or the like this uh, French group and I think NICAP uh, or uh, 
Not Nike. Right. Narcap? Narcap. Narcap. Yeah. The, I always get them mixed up. But they took a look at it uh, and liked it. And so has this other uh, FLIR specialist. Right. We had we actually ran across a, uh, a FLIR specialist who actually works on these exact systems. So he was very familiar with them. Yep. And if you haven't seen that, I posted his story on openminds.tv because I got to interact with that gentleman and I posted his response to some of the uh, criticisms or at least uh, possible uh, the responses from some people who thought it might be other things. So really interesting stuff. The other thing that came out, and I haven't even written a story about this, but uh, Martin and I talked about it earlier in the news, is this UFO data group. You're actually a part of that also. And this is where, well, maybe you can explain what they're doing. Well, the UFO data group is basically trying to study UFOs real time. And they're trying to uh, obtain scientific data on it. And within that group are a number of scientists, including uh, scientists who worked on the Hestalen project. Uh, also, Mark Rodiger, who's uh, the head of PUFOS. And basically what, what the group is doing is developing a camera type system which will also look at spectra and a few other parameters and trying to build a system that's fairly affordable that can uh, identify unknowns uh, in the sky mm -hmm. that's exciting so i've had mark and uh, doug trumbull on mark d'antonio who's a optics uh what photo specialist for mufon because uh, they're doing something similar called ufo tog right right they're doing something similar and it, it might make sense at some point in time for the two groups to uh to, to work together mm -hmm. on on this because it's it you know it sounds like a simple thing to do but it's actually fairly complicated Mm -hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, so far, videos and pictures alone are not helpful. Um, we'll get into some more about uh, the importance of witness data when we get into the top 10. However, uh, getting other telemetry, uh, it will be important for trying to figure out uh, if something is truly anomalous, I guess, just like in the Puerto Rico case where you add heat signatures and, and the heat signature seems to... Uh, especially be able to rule out balloons. Right. Yeah. Well, that's uh, and, and basically what we did in that case, Alejandro, is we said we looked at all the possible explanations and eliminated them all. And mm -hmm. so we eliminated all the uh, known objects that could explain what we've seen in the video. So, you know, the individuals, if, if there is someone out there who feels like, oh, this could be a balloon, all they need to do is, you know, write a report and explain why it's a balloon. But we've looked at that, and in our opinion, and that includes, you know, a, a physicist, a mathematician, a chemist, and, and others on the team, um, we cannot explain it with a balloon. Mm -hmm. And what's great is, even with the FLIR expert, he said, regardless of the movement uh, or what someone feels the movement may be doing, uh, since we do have that uh, heat uh, dimension to it, uh, more data than a, just a regular picture, that, uh, you know, this thing is way too hot to be a balloon, so, uh, which helps him uh, rule that out. Right, yeah, the, the, the heat signature eliminates the, the balloon theory even independent of the lines of sight 
the, the video shows, which also eliminates the uh-huh. So I still have to write a, a story, like I said, about the UFO data thing. Hopefully I'll do the, get time to do that tomorrow. I got uh, It's going to be busy today, today but um, you mentioned Hesdalen, the Hesdalen lights, and that's exciting. There's some people working on the UFO data thing. I guess I didn't realize that who were related to Hesdalen. And uh, the Hesdalen lights are in Norway. It's it's kind of an area where they see uh, anomalous lights. And I think it's – is it the University of Oslo where some uh, – they've had a research project looking into them? Yeah, I'm not sure, Alejandro, which university in Europe, but it's – uh, I know that there are Italians and French and Norwegians involved in the Estelle and Light project. Yeah, I think that's one of the most uh, fascinating, you know, UFO um, hotspots in the world. Maybe the most fascinating uh, in that they do have these uh, researchers who have looked into it for years and can't figure it out. Right. And myself, I'm not sure that it's, you know, what you would call a typical UFO type mm-hmm. of event, right, because it seems to be very repetitive in a given geographical area. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, but it's definitely worth studying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some people refer to it as more anomalous balls of light, um, but uh, it, they're still, yeah, really interesting phenomena. Um, but getting into the top 10, so that's why we're here, is that the Scientific Review Board, like you had mentioned, comes up with these top 10 UFO cases. Uh, this is from 2014, and uh, even though it's it's September, uh, and, you know, 2015 is mostly over, I mean, it takes you all a lot of time to go through and figure out the best cases, uh, so it, it, you need that time, right? Oh, absolutely, because what has to happen... Uh, on every case is the field investigator has to investigate a case and they're given uh, on average 90 days to complete the investigation of a case so it, at the very earliest it would be you know April of the next year before you could uh, even begin to have your top 14 or top 10 cases mm-hmm and how many people are on this review board well we have there's actually a sub-team, and then there's the science review board. Mm-hmm. The, the sub-team looks at about 500 cases every month, and we have five individuals, so we split up the month. And, you know, some of those cases you can get through very quickly, but we we take the best cases of that month, and then we look for, you know, how strange is the case? Was it in the daytime or nighttime? How close was it to the witness? Uh, how many witnesses were there, what's the quality of the witnesses. And then based on that, we pick the very best cases. And then at the end of the year, which actually, of course, the end of the year is end of year plus three months because you have to give the investigators time to complete their cases. Uh So in roughly April, uh, we take those cases and we submit them to the Science Review Board. And the Science Review Board consists of nine individuals. Um, they have science degrees in physics, um, geology, um, aerospace, chemistry, uh, also in software. And some of their history, I mean, some of these guys worked at Northrop uh, Grumman, at Lockheed Martin, Liverpool National Laboratories, um, NASA. So we've got a good group. 
Uh, they're very conservative. They're science-based, uh, science. Um, so what they will do is they will look at roughly 30 cases that this sub-team submitted to them. And they look for, okay, which of these cases is it difficult to come up with any type of normal explanation? And that's what creates our final top 10 cases. So these are cases that we feel are not easily explainable. Mm-hmm. And do they only take unknowns or, for instance, has it ever happened? Because I know I've looked at unknown cases when we've posted them on our site and and kind of felt, well, that probably shouldn't have been an unknown. I think we know what it is. Or uh, have you all ever looked at a, a what is, the investigator decided was an identified and then said, well, we're not so sure about that? Well, uh, I'll tell you, there's so much work involved mm-hmm. in trying to uh, identify these that we really don't have the time to go look at the ones, like if a field investigator said something's identified, um, we we take them at their word on it. We really don't have the time to go back and redo everything they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. So when on your report, one of the first things you do is uh, you review the number of UFO sightings uh, for the year. And 2014 was essentially not by much, but a, a record year of sighting reports for you all. Right. If, if you look at it, look at 2014, it definitely increased. Uh, there is a general upward uh, move in the number of sighting reports. And, it, it, you know, it's difficult to say, okay, is that because there are truly, quote, more UFOs in the sky? Or is that because individuals have become more familiar with the MUFON database? Or perhaps Hangar 1 has caused more people to... Uh, turning reports that that's difficult uh, to say mm-hmm. but it, as we track it you, if there is a, a true sudden increase that's not explainable I, I think it will show up on the chart at some point in time mm-hmm. so right good point and that's when people always ask you know uh, about UFO sightings are there more UFO sightings and it's always a hard question to answer because there are more sighting reports as far as are there more people seeing them that's hard to say because like you said it just may be awareness and of course with the Hangar One television show about MUFON I know Roger Marsh who's the director of communications for MUFON said he felt that, you know, there was an influx, especially later in the season, of, uh, of historical cases that were submitted, um, but they were really good stuff. Uh, and it seems like you've got at least a couple of those in your document here. Right, yeah, we've got a couple of historical cases uh, that are part of our top ten. So I think mm-hmm. eight occurred actually in the year 2014, and two they were reported in 2014, but they occurred at, a, at an earlier date. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned, I mean, 2012, there were a lot of sightings. That was the record uh, up until now. I mean, 2013, there was a dip. 2014, an increase. I'm assuming because of Hangar 1, we'll probably see a, a big increase in 2015. But uh, even though there are more sightings, was it 2012 where uh, you uh, couldn't come up with 10 great cases and only had eight in your report? Right. That was actually it was 2013. Okay. Uh, there was a little dip in the number of re- 
reports total, but uh, also in addition to that dip, we did not have as many good cases in, in 2012, so we only uh, listed eight. Mm -hmm. So let's get into these cases. Well, and I guess I should ask, um, what is the criteria for a good case uh, to make it? And, and for instance, uh, what criteria was not met to to uh, get to that 10 mark? Well, so to make a good case, one thing that has to happen is there had to be a very good investigation. So mm -hmm. the field investigator had to investigate it fairly well. Um, a second thing that's important is the number of witnesses. Um, this does not mean that a single witness, uh, a case with only one witness couldn't make the top 10. But in general, we want cases that have multiple witnesses. Uh, the, the other thing that we look for is did it occur during daylight, daylight hours? Um, and if it occurred at night, well then, it has to be just lights in the sky. There has to be something that makes it unique. Mm -hmm. um, a third category is distance uh, to the witness. The closer it is to the witness, you know, the stronger uh, that aspect of the case. Another part that's, uh, that we feel is important also is strangeness of the case. Mm -hmm. In other words, if there's something in the details provided by the witness that are so strange, you would think, why would you make that up? Then, then that actually adds to the case. So we basically look at all those variables and we uh, rate them. The whole team rates them. And then uh, I take the, you know, I throw out the high and the low ratings and then average in between. And so far, uh, this subjective process that we use has turned out to be fairly objective in identifying the best cases. Mm -hmm. What's great, too, what's interesting about this is that you know, one of the things you did not mention was pictures or videos. And I think now we find, even though we get a lot of feedback, people get frustrated. Why are there no pictures? Why is there no video with this sighting? But pictures and videos, it's turning out, don't really add much to the sighting because often they're just too anomalous. You can't tell what's going on. They don't help prove anything. And so you have to come back to all of the criteria you just listed, uh, the credibility of the witness and the witness testimony, the number of witnesses, and uh, this sort of thing. Right. That's absolutely correct. I mean, ideally, you want very good uh, witnesses with photographs, but it's very unusual to get both of those. And this year, we have one case that's got good photographs and a good witness, uh, actually two witnesses to it, and uh, that helped that case a lot. But often, a photograph is little more than the dot on a, you know, on, on a digital screen. Mm -hmm. uh, the, unless something's just very close, the tip, if, you know, your listeners should take their iPhones out and just go try to take a photograph of the moon and see what they get. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not going to get a lot, especially at nighttime. It won't even look like the moon. <laughs> It'll no, look it like even, a dot. Yeah. And, and it will probably be overexposed. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can imagine something that's not even as bright as the moon. Yeah. So that, so then really you're left you're with photographing something during the daytime. Mm -hmm. And, of, of course, what everyone wants to see is a, uh, a close-up photograph of something during the daytime. Right. 
Well, speaking of that photographic case, the one, uh, your report starts off with that, and we'll start off with it. And this was a photo taken during the daytime, uh, at least that's included here. And I think you said uh, there were multiple photos, so maybe you can uh, describe this case for us. Sure. In this particular case, it was a mother and her 14-year-old son. Uh, this was near St. Louis, Missouri. Um, they were driving down the highway, and they see an object that they described as metallic, and the sun was glistening off the object. As they began to uh, exit the highway, they described the object as suddenly coming towards them very quickly. And at that point in time, the son had his, uh, I believe it was an, actually an iPad, uh, or I don't think it was an iPhone. I'll have to look that up. But at any rate, he took 13 shots in about two seconds. So he must have had it on that mode where you just hold your finger down and it snaps them very quickly because the time difference between each frame was roughly two-tenths of a second. Hmm. So we got a lot of photographs. And what made this case very good was the object, um, we could measure its size in the photograph in terms of its angle, angular size. And its angular size was half a degree. So for your listeners, half a degree is roughly the size of a full moon in the sky. So in a photograph, the full moon doesn't look that large. But if you're looking at the sky and you see an object the size of the full moon, that's a pretty good-sized object in terms of size and closeness to the witness. Mm -hmm. So what uh, we were able to do, because she was exiting at roughly 50 miles an hour, that actually helped us in calculating the movement of the object in relation to the movement of the car. So, for example, without even going into the math, you can understand how what they captured was not an insect, right? If you're in a car moving 50 miles an hour, you're not going to capture an insect in your phone frame for a full two seconds because unless it's splattered on the uh, <laughs> on your window, it's gone within a split second mm -hmm. because of the speed you're traveling at. So we were able to basically determine that this object was somewhere roughly between... 1,500 feet away and 500 feet away, and it's, that its size was between 5 and 20 feet, and its speed was between 150 to 600 miles an hour. You might say, well, what, why these big differences? Well, that's because we don't truly know the size of the object, right? But we do know its angular size, and we know possible distances it could be from the car, so we're able to bracket it down to those to those ranges and what um, the other thing we did with this is we sent these photos to uh, a group in France called IPACO IPACO and this group's very conservative on their analysis of UFO photos for example the your listeners may be familiar with the UFO case McMinnville in Oregon back in the 1950s where there are two photographs of a uh, a disc-shaped object with a little hat-looking feature on it. Well, this French group looked at those, and, and they believe those are, they believe those photos were faked. Now, I happen to disagree with them, but I'm just bringing up that point to say that this group mm -hmm. is very conservative. 
in their analysis. And they looked at these 13 photos, and their conclusion was basically the same as mine. They could not identify that it could be any type of bird, insect, uh, anything like that. I mean, the only thing you might say is, well, a disc-shaped drone, right, mm-hmm. uh, would be about all you could come up with. Right. And although that's kind of a stretch, too, because a disc-shaped drone um, would most likely have, have uh, propellers. And at least looking at the picture, you can't see that. It looks like a, a disc shape that is um, angled up to the left at, uh, what, about 35 degrees, uh, maybe, and then angled towards the camera a bit. And you so you, it appears that you're looking at the flat bottom uh, of a disc-shaped object. Right, yeah. It's uh, There's no indication of a propeller or a jet exhaust or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really strange picture. Um, and and it's, it harkens, really, it reminds me of the really old, like, 50s, 60s, you know, photos we used to see. I think there's a famous one from Canada. Uh, and, and I think, you know, when I first saw this picture, I was like, oh, that's a one of those old photos from the 60s or something. But no, this is uh, something that just uh, happened in 2014. Yeah, it looks like one of those old-fashioned flying saucer photos. Mm-hmm. So strange. And for the listeners, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do more of a write-up on this in, uh, eventually on the site. But you can uh, – I'm going to use this picture for the feature uh, when we post this story on openminds.tv. So when you go to the radio page, you'll be able to see uh, this photo because uh, I know they're going to be curious to look at it. Um, so, yeah, really interesting picture. So that was a great one. And you have no reason to uh, then uh, question the uh, credibility of the witnesses. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, we were able, because we got the copies of the originals from their iPad system and so the XF data which is all your cameras indicate you know the exact time that a photograph is taken and there's uh, software that allows you to determine if there was any editing of that uh, video frame Mm -hmm. and so that software indicated there was no editing of the frame Uh, that's the same thing the IPACO group in France looked for also you know, was there any indication that someone had edited this and, and just created it? And there, there's no indication of that. Mm-hmm. So interesting stuff. Now, when the review board goes in and reviews these stories, do they contact the witness? No, the, the uh, science review board does not contact the witness, but our sub-team will sometimes contact the witness and or the field investigator mm-hmm. uh, to get them to provide additional information that we may want to see. Right. So this next case from July 8th, uh, Joplin, Missouri. I don't know. I know I had heard of this story. Maybe Roger had written about it on our site. That's probably it. Or I know I've interviewed um, one or both, the state director and the assistant director, uh, Debbie Ziegelmeyer and Margie Kay in Missouri. So it may have been them who talked about it. But, uh, yeah, this is a Missouri case, and this is a really interesting one with multiple witnesses as well. Right, yes, and uh, you're right. That's probably where you had heard about the case. It was also featured in the MUFON Journal. Oh, okay. Uh, This occurred in Joplin, Missouri, so 
That's in southwestern Missouri as compared to the previous case, which was in east central Missouri. And there were three witnesses in this case. Uh, one witness is a former police officer. Another is a former commercial airline pilot. And the third was a licensed nurse's aide. And all three witnesses indicate a boxy-shaped object was overhead and about 300 feet off the ground. So here you have a case where the object is quite close, I mean, 300 feet, and they describe it as the size of a house. You're not talking about a dot in the sky or anything mm -hmm. small. You're talking about a very large object close to you. So, you know, you either believe the police officer and the pilot and the nurse's aide, or, or you decide all three simultaneously hallucinated, or all three decided to make up a story. Because this is not a case where you could say, oh, they misinterpreted what they saw. Um, the object's too close and too large. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, uh, what they indicated was that uh, this object was flat on the bottom. It had round, orange, and red randomly flashing lights all around the bottom edge. They felt that it moved fairly slow. Uh, they estimated 100 miles an hour. You know, it, it could have been slower, it could have been faster, but that's, you know, that's their best guess. Uh, then they indicate it turns off its lights, and then it zips off quickly um, and, and disappears. So they go um, driving in a Jeep to try and find it, and they, they do not find it, but in the process, uh, their spotlight dies um, on their flashlight that they've got. And the Jeep's electrical system uh, almost goes out a couple of times. So um, whether those are truly related to the UFO, that's you know, hard to say. A mm -hmm. good chance they are. Mm -hmm. This, this, is, this at, is a very interesting case. Yeah, and at 9.30 p.m., it, it reminds me of like a uh, close encounters kind of situation where the car doesn't start and start. Right, and and the other thing that happens, they went out the field investigators to measure uh, magnetism on the G, and there were magnetic uh, indications on on the Jeep itself in, in various areas, and there was uh, an indication of some type of light burn on the arm of uh, one of the witnesses. Mm -hmm. There's an illustration that comes with this picture, and another weird aspect, uh, which I don't think I've seen before, is they just kind of indicated apparently that the, the lights were pretty random on the bottom, or at least there were some lights in the configuration around the edges, but then also some smaller ones kind of uh, peppered throughout the, the middle of the craft. Right. Very weird. So, yeah, that was a good case. Um, then we had a very interesting case in Augusta, Maine. Um, this was the typical triangle case. But what was not typical is that there were five witnesses, uh, husband, wife, and three children. Uh, two of the three children were teenagers. And the husband uh, has a Ph.D. in mathematics and is a math professor. So here we have a very, uh, you know, very educated uh, witness who has nothing to gain by making up a story. And so they're, um, egg they've gone to Target. Uh, they're headed back home. They exit onto the freeway when all of a sudden to the left, 
they uh, they see these three lights. And at first, they thought they were perhaps looking at the lights from some towers. They weren't, they weren't sure. But then the husband, he pokes his head out of the car through the, uh, uh, you know, the moonlight window up above on top. And at that point, they, he and his wife both see the shape of the object. So now they're seeing more than lights. And he, he draws what he saw um, because he could see scenes on this triangular shaped object. And in the center of it, they saw what they felt was not any lighting, but an indention in the very center. And then there were lights on the three ends of the triangle. Now, here's when it gets interesting. So the object's basically sitting still. Uh, they drive down the road a bit, and then they turn back around to come back to uh, look at the object further. And by this point in time, the object has begun to move, and then it accelerates at a very high rate of speed and disappears. Well, during this point as it begins to move, the wife says that that indention underneath the triangle, you know, where, uh, where it looks like there was a, uh, like a scalloped area, mm -hmm. that that area now has, is shining a red light in that area. Hmm. So it's interesting. And the other thing that they describe, and here's the strangeness, is is that the triangle's leaving, it's rotating rapidly. So, again, you have, this is the kind of the strangeness component that we look for. There's no reason that these witnesses should make up that you had a rotating triangle. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not what you would normally, you know, come up with if you were just making something up right and that detail of of seeing these seams um on the craft uh that's just kind of an odd detail that you you kind of led right. credibility to the sighting exactly yeah mm -hmm. so weird that i mean the triangles are so weird in that um they are seen so often and they there seems to be so many stories lately of people seeing the triangular craft and a lot of every time someone posts them uh, you know someone will comment oh that's just the TR3B and I, I always will occasionally I'll make the comment that well we don't know if the TR3B uh, exists I don't think it does I don't think there's enough evidence to show that it does plus these sightings have been going on for a very very long time right the triangles really showed up in the early 80s and they've kind of stayed with us since then mm -hmm. um, you know they were a rare type of um, sighting when the ufo phenomenon began back in the 40s and 50s and 60s mm -hmm. uh, then it was mostly the disc shaped objects but now i would say the triangular shaped objects are are perhaps the most prevalent of the ones where you get very good reports mm -hmm. Um, and the thing I look for that tells me um, it's not a B2 or, you know, the TR, whatever, you know, that someone thinks exists, is when you have a large triangular object that's basically not moving mm -hmm. and there's no sound, we have nothing, I mean, with our ability to just sit there, right? That's large. 
You can't make a large object just sit there unless it's a lighter-than-air object, such as a dirigible. But then if it's a dirigible, it can't suddenly take off at a high rate of speed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, So anytime I, I hear about a large object that's just sitting still with uh, no sound, I, I don't think there's uh, a, an easy explanation for that. Yeah, really weird. I mean, what are the chances you think uh, if we had, let's say Roswell was some real, uh, something like this, a highly technological uh, advanced uh, craft that was retrieved, uh, could it have been back engineered and then they created these triangles? No, I don't think so. Uh, the the field I was in uh, um, was semiconductors, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we did all the time. We back engineered our competitor semiconductor chips. Hmm. And, and was that legal? That, oh yeah, yeah, it's legal. <laughs> There's nothing illegal about doing that. Uh, they would do the same with our chips. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the difference is, imagine that you took one of these semiconductor chips and you gave it to the best scientists of the world in the year 1750. So you go back 300 years. There is no way they could deprocess them because, for one thing, the electron microscope had not even been invented by then, so they they couldn't they couldn't even see the parts of the chip mm-hmm. that are doing the work. Uh, additionally, to deprocess it, they would have destroyed the chip in the process. So, if if you believe that an advanced uh, extraterrestrial race would lose some high-tech equipment here on Earth by whatever means. I, I don't believe we would have any chance of, of uh, deprocessing and making any sense of it. Mm-hmm. But I guess I guess there is the off there is the chance that uh, and I don't know that uh, although you you said you feel it's unlikely. I guess there's a chance we can't completely rule out that that could be some sort of advanced technology, these gigantic triangles, huh? Well, I, I don't think it's advanced technology that we created. Mm-hmm. Because usually, the, the you know, the military is 20 years ahead of what we see today. Right. And there's nothing that I've seen. I keep up with, you know, what all's going on. There's nothing I've seen that would say that we have the ability to put a heavy craft in the air and let it just sit there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the closest we come to that, it's like an uh, an Osprey or an F-35, right? An F-35 can take off with very little runway. It's almost like a vertical type takeoff, and it can almost basically come to a momentary uh, halt in the air. Mm-hmm. But But it's... It's using a huge amount of jet fuel to do that, and it's making a huge amount of noise. Right. <clears throat> and an F-35 is nowhere near the size of these triangular craft. This mm-hmm. would be more like taking, uh, stacking a couple of B-52s on top of each other and letting them just sit still in the air. Yeah. You know, we don't have, we're nowhere close to having that ability. Mm-hmm. I'd like one of these, though. These triangular <laughs> yeah, guys, be nice. <laughs> they sound pretty cool. 
So uh, I guess we'll skip the Cheyenne, Wyoming one. Uh, we won't be able to cover all ten, but it's kind of neat. I mean, these guys on a mountain bike who thought they're uh, they were going to get hit by a UFO. Um, an interesting one. But uh, in interest of time, to move on to some of these great ones, the Chicago one. I think this is a big deal, the Chicago one. Yeah, this one is is the Chicago O'Hare uh, case that occurred back in 2006. Uh, a lot of people may be familiar with it. Uh, NARCAP uh, wrote a very good, I think it was over 100 pages on the uh, Chicago O'Hare incident, which was a, a disc-shaped object that was hovering over, um, I believe it was Gate 19. C-17. Or C-17, okay. <laughs> it was on C-17. And basically, it was seen by a lot of uh, United Airlines employees as well as people on the tarmac and a number of uh, civilian witnesses. And they wrote an entire report on this. Uh, it made big news in the Chicago newspaper. Um, so the news was widespread. And people so, reported this thing shot up and punched a hole in the clouds. Exactly. So I get, uh, I find this contact, this guy contacted an individual I know who just turned him over to me. So I interviewed him. Of course, my first concern was, did this, you know, is this guy just a copycat? He heard about it and, and knows about it, right? So that's what I'm looking for. Is this a real report or not? Well, the first thing this guy has is he has his original United Airlines ticket that he kept all these years because of what he saw. It was so fascinating to him. Mm -hmm. So he sends me his airline ticket, you know, that proves he was on this airline. And I verify that airline landed at Chicago O'Hare at the time this UFO was seen. So he was clearly on the airliner that uh, landed at the time of the UFO. And... The thing that was very interesting about his description, and it was unique, is this is the only witness so far that was in a landing aircraft that saw the disc. Everyone else was on the ground. Now, what he described when he first sees it, right, because he's above the object, it looks circular to him. So his initial feel is he's looking at a circular object. But as the plane continues to descend, and he's more at a level point with the UFO. At that point, he can tell it's not just circular, it's disc-shaped. So you can imagine how if you took a disc-shaped object like a plate and you turned it sideways as if you were looking at it from above, it's going to look just like a circle. But as you come more even with it, now it looks like a disc. So that was interesting that that he described that and he also described the object going up through the clouds and the reason he remembers that it burned you know a hole through the clouds was that it was an overcast day there was no sunlight and once this object took off and after it left there was sunlight coming through those clouds hmm. right where the object had been wow that's interesting yeah so th this was a an excellent uh case that corroborates what NARCAP found, and uh, I sent a copy of this to Rich Haynes so that, you know, he would have a copy for his files. Yeah, that's really cool. And another expert on this case is Sam Moranto, the MUFON State Director for Illinois, and he's going to be talking about this case at the UFO Congress this year, or in 2016, here coming up in February. Oh, okay. 
people may not know that because I don't even have that up on the site yet because Sam is dragging his feet on giving me information. So <laughs> <laughs> he's just a busy guy. Well, if Sam so. can't do it, let me know. And I'll, since I, I act, this report I actually wrote. So this one uh, I did the investigation on. So yeah. He's going to do a couple. Uh, he's going to do the Tinsley Park site again and uh, Chicago O'Hare. So that's going to be great. We're going to have you, hopefully. Well, I think we'll have uh, this worked out by then. But you'll be uh, presenting on your own or maybe with one of the other guys the Puerto Rico case. Right. And that, that's going to be a, a great case for people to see on a big screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's going to be really exciting because people will be able to get the updates. Uh, maybe we can schedule some kind of debate if someone wants to debate you about it. But uh, who knows? <laughs> right. It is three minutes of uh, a full three minutes of video of a unknown object. Mm hmm. Well, I guess out of the other cases, let's do bring up this uh, the next one because it's a police case from Arvada, Colorado. That's pretty interesting. Right. That, uh, this case, I mean, we have an excellent witness, right? He's a police officer. We've removed his name, you know, to protect him. But basically, he's going through his usual uh, patrol through a park in uh, in Arvada, Colorado. And as he's going through this park, he sees these lights moving, moving along a trail. And he initially thinks, well, maybe they're bicycle lights or something like that. And then he... He starts to believe that that's not the case because he's seeing multiple lights and they appear to be above the ground. So then he goes over into the area to investigate. And the really strange thing, and bear in mind this is in June, the middle of June, uh, there's frost all over the vegetation in the area where he saw these lights. So he, you know, he doesn't have an explanation for that. So mm -hmm. the next thing this police officer does. Uh, in the next few days, he finds some video. Uh, basically, these are video uh, systems that are set up in the park that are always running. You know, it's like nowadays, doesn't matter where you go, there's a video camera <laughs> watching you just about. Yeah. So he finds a video and uh, gets a copy of it. And we have a copy of it. Uh, it's on the MUFON site. And you can see these lights moving. They're far away. But it does corroborate what the police officer said he saw. And the really strange thing is just, you know, how do you explain this frost in the middle of the summer? And why is the frost in the same area that he saw these lights? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really weird one. Uh, there's some other really good ones, too. I mean, uh, there's uh, another what, other triangular cases. So there's one in Georgia. But I want to get to this one in, in Florida because it's a military case. Right. Uh, what's interesting about this case is you have two brothers, and this is in 1975. Uh, they're 18 miles away from Panama City. They're in the uh, uh, Gulf of Mexico. They're fishing. And they're fishing near a naval undersea research platform. And so it's their fishing. Uh, they see two... Again, the flying saucer-shaped discs come towards them. They say they get these discs get within a hundred feet of their fishing boats, so they're close to them. They see them up close during the they, day, right? Yes, right during the day. It's two o'clock in the afternoon, 
and then they say each disc is about the size of a Boeing 727 hmm. and completely quiet. But then the, the next thing that happens is these objects approach this naval uh, research platform. They could see Navy frogmen descending the stairs on the platform to get into a rubber raft. And then as the object gets closer, they see the guys go back up the stairs and back into the research facility. And, and not long after that, the two disc-shaped objects take off and leave, and within a, a couple of minutes of that, two F-4 Phantom jets go roaring towards the same area that the UFOs had gone to. So what's interesting about these two brothers is that they're good witnesses. One became a, uh, had a master's in electrical engineering. This is after they witnessed this, and became a U.S. Army officer. Uh, the other brother worked for the CIA, so there's no reason for these two brothers to make a story like this up. Mm -hmm. They've got too much to lose to uh, do that. And of course, we don't—we've never given out their names because uh, most people today, when they report a UFO, uh, want their names uh, not released to the public. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think some people would wonder. If, uh, you know, the, the Navy, I guess, knew what those were. But, uh, of course, the technology they're exhibiting is pretty astounding. Right. Yeah, what a weird one. That one's really cool. And then the next one's really neat, too. This one had some drawings submitted. And I love the drawings because you really get the uh, kind of dramatic uh, experience that this witness um, uh, is claiming to have had. Yeah, this guy he he has a farm. I think it was I think it was a three hundred acre farm that he works. He's a a technical writer, so he's got a little bit of a technical background, and he's going out to check on his solar panels to make sure they're adjusted right um, before the morning comes up the next day. It's about nine thirty in the evening, and so as he goes out, he sees this large round object directly over his head, and it's got blue white lights around the outer edge, and red lights. Uh, unevenly distributed between the blue lights. And the object's rotating. And as soon as he goes out, he says it begins moving westward over his garden. And he, as it gets a little farther, he can now see that it has a curvature on the top. So this is kind of like, you know, the Chicago hair guy, right? When it's right above you, it looks like a circle. Uh -huh. But as it, as it gets a little farther away, he can see that there's a top to it. And he, he says... The lights are almost like dancing around the edge of the object. So he, he watches it for a few seconds, and then he decides, okay, I've got to get a picture of this. So he runs in the house to get his iPhone, and by the time he gets outside, the object has moved far enough away that now it's too far away for him to get a good photograph. Um, because, he, as he says, it's beyond his line of sight at the tree line, and he could no longer see its glow. But he did provide some great drawings of, of what he saw. Mm-hmm. Pretty weird one. And, uh, you know, this is a good example of, you know, when you say, okay, why didn't you get a photograph? Because if you put yourself in his shoes, right, mm -hmm. as soon as you see something like this, you're almost like a deer in headlights. Yeah. Because your first thought has got to be, this can't be real. Mm-hmm. You know? I I miss you know I don't know what I'm looking at but what is this this is not you know is this some kind of 
helicopter. No, you know, your brain is just flipping through all the things that might be immediately eliminating them all. Right. But by the time you realize, you know, this is something, I, I don't have an explanation for this, and you run into the, the house to grab your camera, well, unless this object is going to just sit there, um, you're not going to have a chance to get a photograph. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a, the weirdest sighting I've had, which is not close to as interesting as any of these that we've been reviewing, uh, that's what was going on in my brain, and it wasn't until the sighting was pretty much over by the time I had determined this is really something weird, you know. Um, so I certainly didn't have time in the few seconds that it was still around to, to grab a camera or binoculars, so I can understand that feeling. So, and then this last one, uh, it looks like there was uh, some radar data that uh, may help uh, support the case? Uh, yeah, this last case, again, is a police officer. It took place in Vancouver, Washington, and he was on patrol, and um, he noticed this object, uh, and he describes it as a metallic disc, silver in color, circular shape, moving rapidly across the sky from the south to the northeast, from his right to his left. And it's shining, it's, gl it's uh, glistening in the sun. And so he, he clearly sees what he believes is, is a disc-shaped object. And not long after that, uh, he sees an F-15 come and is basically headed towards where the object disappeared. Um, so what was done next is William Puckett, who happened, uh, who was the MUFON director, state director in Montana, uh, he got involved and, and ordered some radar data and obtained the radar data. And I know William, and I know he he does a good job of analyzing radar data because uh, he worked a little bit on the Stephenville radar data, uh, so I'm familiar with his work. And he basically picks up the F-15 on the radar data. You can see the F-15 moving. It's, it's very clear, easy to see. And you also see another object, um, but there's only three hits on that object, and it's uh, in the same direction as the F-15 went and where the police officer said he, he saw this object. Um, there's no way to know absolutely that this is, you know, the same disc-shaped object the uh, policeman saw, but it's, it's in the right place and at the right time. Mm-hmm. And another one with an F-15. Now, you wrote, uh, you helped with others write a great book uh, where you guys poured for years over, um, you know, uh, government UFO files um, and to put together kind of the, the most comprehensive book on government UFO files. Um, and, I mean, do you think that you, they are you know, sending jets out after this stuff? Yeah, uh, the name of that book is actually is UFOs in Government, a Historical Inquiry. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yes, we have definitely sent jets at, after UFOs in the past. The first documented case was uh, in in our book, and this was uh, well, actually, there's two documented cases. The very first one was uh, Mantell, right? The uh, that's like seems like 1949 or 50, mm -hmm. and he was in, I think he was in a P-51 when he went up after 
uh, an unidentified object. Uh, there were also cases in 1950 over Oak Ridge National Laboratories uh, where they sent up aircraft mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, unknowns picked up on radar and visually seen. And then in 1952, there was a very, this is, remember when the, all the cases over Washington, D.C.? Yeah, uh, great cases. Right. Well, this occurred a month and a half before, and uh, Mike Swords and I actually went to the uh, Texas A&M's Historical Library, where they have all the um, old records of one of the guys uh, that worked on the Condon Report. And we got his, we actually have his tapes of an interview with a Boeing engineer. And this Boeing engineer was working at the time for the Army. He was operating a radar site. And he said they were picking up these objects off the coast. And this is in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. So this is probably 100 miles north of Washington, D.C. They're picking up on radar. He says they, they get orders that came from the Pentagon. And the orders were, the next time that you guys pick these up, we want jets scrambled and we want the radar systems um, to lock on because the radar were tied in these 90 millimeter anti-aircraft guns. And so they were prepared to fire on <laughs> these wow. UFOs with anti-aircraft guns. Wow. Well, he said the next time they showed up, they scrambled the F-85s. They didn't fire their anti-aircraft guns because they were outside of their range, but the F-85s went up after them. And he said one of the pilots got within uh, firing distance and was preparing to fire, and right before he prepared to fire, the objects just disappeared off the radar. It's just like they, you know, whether they totally disappeared or zipped away at a high rate of speed, there's no way to say. Uh-huh. But um, they never, they did not get their opportunity to fire on them. Wow. It's it's surprising that it seems as though um, these can't-mouse kind of games where we scramble jets, they chase them, the things fly around and then take off and are gone. Um, The same sort of stories that you heard in your book and and in Blue Book uh, from the 50s uh, is the same kind of thing as going on maybe today oh yeah i i suspect that it that it does and the thing that you know we know about the cases from the 1950s because they'll finally release things after enough time goes by mm-hmm. but anything that happened today you know the government's not going to tell you about so right you know whether it's true or not you'll never know right well cool thank you so much for coming on and sharing these stories um uh, you know, it's not, not up now, which is kind of good, these stories. I mean, that just means that this top 10 list is kind of an exclusive of Open Minds Radio for now. But uh, I know you've sent this over to Roger, so Roger and or I will be putting up uh, these stories uh, in more detail as time goes on. But um, really awesome stuff. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing it. Oh, you're welcome, Alejandro. As usual, I enjoy talking to you. Yep, thanks for spending the time, and thanks for doing it twice. I think, though, that we got it down. We perfected it even better than the first time the second time, huh? Definitely. Hopefully we don't do it a third time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
Cross our fingers. Okay. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. Thank you so much to Robert Powell for being on the show. You can go to MUFON.com to read more about those cases. Uh, we'll write about some of these cases as, as time goes on as well. And, uh, you know, actually, MUFON, he said, doesn't even have them posted yet, though. So they will at some point. But um, either way, we'll tell you more about them, and we'll keep working on those. And uh, we'll get you more information at OpenMinds.tv. Um, otherwise, I want to give you some news. Of course, I told you earlier about the Open Mind UFO News Group on Facebook where you can discuss. There's going to be a ton of discussion going on about um, UFOs and all of these stories. Uh, you can go there and post your own stories, too. I mean, we encourage discussion, of course, as long as it is civil and people are being uh, courteous to each other and constructive. You know, sure. Debates happen. Everybody has a different perspective on what's going on. As you know from uh, listening to this show, everybody uh, thinks differently about the possibilities here. However, um, there is no reason that we can't discuss these things and disagree and debate in a civil manner um, as we do on this show. <laughs> you know, I think we've disagreed with people or, you know, kind of gone back and forth many times, but never have we gotten down to like yelling and screaming at each other or being mean or uh nobody's hung up on me you know and said hey screw you man and i'm out of here so yeah so that's proof that you know we can discuss civilly and get along even if we disagree so uh feel free to do that in the group so uh really exciting and uh thank you so much to the admins uh, one of those being Mark D'Antonio, Richard Hoffman, um, Karen King, Angelo Dongas. Uh, those are just, uh, I think, the ones that are in there now. Uh, thank you so much to them for doing this um, putting to, and, and adminning because I know they, they put in a lot of hours and, um, and they have a real passion for this. And I can't thank them enough for, for what they do. So uh, come join us. That's the best way to thank them is just joining in the discussion. Simply that, something you want to do anyway uh, in a safe, troll-free environment. The UFO Congress, just a little bit of news there. The hotel's been sold out, the main hotel. Uh, it sells out quickly because uh, we get so many people, which is kind of cool because if you haven't been there, it's this big, beautiful hotel uh, resort in the desert there. It's absolutely gorgeous, and we literally uh, have the entire thing to ourselves for UFO stuff. So uh, that's really cool. We're putting up more speakers uh, by the week, uh, by the day. So there'll be more up uh, very soon here. So go check that out. Uh, pretty soon we will be um, solid, full of speakers. And uh, I'll give you more information. And we'll talk about more of uh, the speakers more as time goes on. But don't worry. Even though the main hotel is sold out, there are plenty of options nearby. So we've got a whole list of them in the hotel section of the ufocongress.com website. And there is an email if you want to be put on the wait list for the main hotel. However, don't get your hopes up because if the hotel's sold out, it's because, you know, a lot of UFOers have gone there, attendees, and gotten their rooms because they're excited to stay and, and, and stay there for the Congress. Of course, things do come up. Sometimes uh, people get sick or something like that, and they've got to cancel. 
So rooms do come up as time goes on, but uh, not a whole lot of them. And uh, that wait list, uh, from what I understand, is pretty long already. But uh, like I said, uh, I even posted a hotel that is not that far. That's like 50 bucks a night. So you could rent a car. That way you're mobile and you can be all over the place. And uh, stay at this hotel, uh, which is 50 bucks, and save yourself some money. So... Uh, and have a car so i think that's a great option personally so go check out the website the hotel page and you're going to see a lot more information about all of this but uh, don't worry no worries just come to the hotel in the morning and hang out all day and uh, we'll have tons and tons of fun it's always a lot of fun we also have some really interesting stuff um lining up in fact we're gonna I'm in talks for a movie production with a movie production company about possibly premiering a movie uh, about UFOs at the conference. I think that's going to happen. And in fact, I'm going to have more information about this next week because I've got an interesting surprise guest for the show next week that uh, I think you all will find fascinating. And it certainly will be creating some news and some talk amongst the ufo crowd uh so yeah we've got a great show next week that's going to be really interesting so check that out and stay tuned also if you're on our email list you probably saw we have some brand new t-shirts out so check that out at the store they're really cool i talked about the flame one a bit if you saw us at the symposium we were wearing our new t-shirts and we looked really good if i do say so myself (laughs) actually on facebook you could see pictures of us with our t-shirts but anyway you can go to the site and see more about that speaking of the newsletter we'll have another one out this week the newsletter updates you on news about the ufo congress and about uh, our top stories going on our ufo reports and about the podcast so if you want to keep up to date on what's going on go to openminds.tv and uh in the upper right hand corner you will see a box where you can add your email address for the newsletter you can also email us at contact at openminds.tv to be added to the newsletter as well Uh, we've got a new ufo report that's up on our youtube and we're going to have another exciting ufo news report that includes some of the news that we talked about here today uh, on this friday as well And any day now, we're going to have, essentially, we're going to put up online for free a documentary about one of the best UFO cases that possibly includes these people interacting with extraterrestrial beings. And, you know, if you know me, that's that's saying a lot, you know, that that, that I would make such a statement. But, um, I mean, this is a baffling case that I think is extraordinary, one of the best out there and i believe it deserves more attention we've given it a lot of attention already just to give you a little bit of a clue of what it might be but uh you know uh, i think we've given it the most attention here at open minds but we've got like a essentially a full length uh documentary uh going up on this case on our youtube for free very soon here and i'll tell you more about that when we post that but michael Klein, who is our video editor and I think extremely talented, 
has just done an amazing job with this piece, and uh, I think it's great. So uh, thanks so much to Michael for for doing this, and uh, I can't wait to show off his work, his handiwork here, which he's just done a great job. So look forward to that. Otherwise, look forward to another show next week. I want to thank Michael. Or I'm. I want to thank Caleb Hanks for the opening and closed music. You can check him out on the radio page, his uh, Clerk Chronicles, where he posts a lot of his uh, music for free. He also has an online comic book because he's also uh, not only a very talented musician, uh, but he does uh, other art as well. This guy's just uh, extremely talented. Super funny, too. He's a really funny guy. But... Um, so thank you so much to Caleb. Uh, thanks for Martin for joining us. Check out UFO Podcast where he's going to talk to Leslie Kane and Mark Rodiger about uh, their new uh, project, uh, looking for UFOs. And uh, thank you to you for listening. So we will talk to you next week, everybody. Adios, muchachos. <laughs>